A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're going to make an admission now, which won't play well in some parts north of the border. But in 1990, during the World Cup semi-final between England and West Germany, when Chris Waddle very nearly chipped Bodo Ilgner in the German goal, but the ball came back off the woodwork. Even as a proud Scot, I so wanted it to go in. At that stage, Chris Waddle to me seemed like Britain's version of Michael Laudrup. The two of them are tall, very big athletic physiques, but they would glide past footballers, A, as if they were on roller skates, and B, as if they had the same low centre of gravity as a Romario or a Pele or a Maradona or a Messi. I thought Waddle was magical to look at, and what some of you who are younger won't know is that when he moved to Marseille, after dazzling at Newcastle, catching my attention there, and then dazzling again at Spurs, as far as I was concerned, there wasn't non-stop Sky television or YouTube internet in order to keep up with the way he was playing. So from intermittent television clips and from the written press, what it appeared to me that he was playing even more brilliantly in France than he had in England and that he was a prince amongst paupers in the French League. Over the years, we've shared conversations about skills development, about what he does and doesn't think about great footballers, modern footballers. So we knew we had to go and talk to him and when he welcomed us to his house, going up the stairs to his private room where there are football shirts framed from every year of his long career from famous people from dozens of countries. I also saw piles and piles of records and CDs and a little statuette of Laurel and Hardy, at which point I knew we had the same sense of humour. This was a joy talking about being bullied at Newcastle, talking about life with Gaza, talking about life in France. Chris is a born raconteur, We called this the big interview because we wanted to touch on big themes and speak to big personalities. Maybe this was the biggest of the big. It's the longest and it's that long for a reason. Chris spoke with wit, passion. He had a pinpoint memory of so many incidents in his career. Neil, Martin and I were absolutely agog. It was a joy. Let's see if at the end of this big interview with Chris Waddle, you feel the same way. I bet you do. We're now, Chris, going to podcast. The last time you and I got together, we shared a beer Mm. in Kiev. Yeah. 
It was just after the final of 2012. We'd seen Spain, Italy, wonderful game, 4-0. But what was still echoing about in my mind that day was something that I think you share a, a, a passion for because the night before the final, I'd been out with the son of Aussie, Federico, and Federico and Adam, our cameraman, and I had been to a Queen concert live in the streets of Kiev, and we found this karaoke bar. Karaoke bar where it's a restaurant, you sit down, you have your meal, you get called up, you sing, and if you're doing well, the waitresses will join in with you. And the lads will tell you that if there's anything more passionate about than football, it's karaoke and singing. <laughs> if we fetched up in Tokyo or back in Kiev, what would be your all-time top three choices of songs to perform if I handed you the microphone and said, you're on? Well, when I do karaoke, which basically when you've said when you've had a beer, that's when you tend to want to do a karaoke. Usually. Yeah, without the, without the beer, I don't think, I don't do a karaoke, to be honest. When I was growing up, I was a big jam fan. Yeah. So I followed the jam around a lot. So I'd have to put one of their songs in that. Out all the songs, probably, I'd have a bash it. It would probably be something like Eating Rifles or Going Underground or Strange Town. Uh, we some classic jam, jam song. Um, the one I've done probably the most, if I was honest, that people say when you get up to karaoke, you've got to do a song. It's either Mr. Brightside, oh. which I absolutely kill. And... Um, <laughs> I've got to say the other one I do, I used to do more of, was Rebel Yell by Billy Idol. I don't know why I ever picked that song. I, Billy Idol, I like some of his stuff, don't get me wrong, but I got up one day and sang it and somebody went, eh, that sounded good. And I thought, are they taking the Michael? Or is, is it? And, and I thought, right. So I took it on board. So every time I sung a karaoke, they used to say, what are you going to sing? And I used to think, Rebel Yell. I must kill it as well. But um, that's yeah, one probably we... three songs. Out. If I had to name the three to get up, that would probably be the three. You, you wake up after a rebel yell night with a very sore throat the next morning. You do, but um, it's just, I don't know. I don't know why I picked that song originally and why I ended up doing it. But I would probably say all the karaoke I've done all my life, I would say rebel yell probably the most I've done. I grew up fascinated by the BBC television centre and the politics and the backbiting of how Top of the Pops was run. What is Top of the Pops like? The, 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 the build-up, the bar, the commissioners, the, the, the director was a, a real Hitler, wasn't he, about like standing yeah. and do this shot up? Yeah, we, we uh, me and Glenn went on in 87 and it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. Yeah. And that even talks about the penalty miss, Germany, finals, FA Cups, Champions League final, Marseille. Any type of football I've played can't compare to Top of the Pops. On the day, I missed the dress rehearsal because I was doing an interview somewhere else in London. Then I arrived, I had one rehearsal, and then basically that was it, went on. I always remember that, I remember it really well. And remember Gary Davis was the guy introducing it. He was stood on some scaffolding above her, high up, and the cameras looked at us, then it was zoomed to him. And he went, introducing now at number 11, two guys who are known in the football, or cutted in the music business, it could be the new Wham. <laughs> We just looked at him if they think, are you real or what? Anyway, then we did it, and then at the finish, the Sunday papers, that was a Thursday, the Sunday papers had a field day called with a new spam, everything they wanted. But to us, it was a nerve-wracking, and I always remember I was on Terence Trent Derby, oh, yeah. five-star. They were all very complimentary, come up, Junior was on with Kim Wilde at the duet they did, and uh, they all come up and said, listen, hey, good on you, it sounds all right, and, you know, fair play, it's good, you know, wish you well. Uh, we were like, are they taking the mic? Or are they being serious? And they were fine, you know. Anyway, and the only bloke we basically hammered with who was on that night was um, Smith Morrison. Oh, did he? He's like, he was like, rubbish shouldn't be here. <laughs> he's a footballer. Cheers, mate. Yeah, we were like, well, yeah, fair enough. Well, I don't understand where he's coming from. <laughs> you know, everybody was going, all right, how are you? He was like, Phew. so, you know, um, 
we were never going to be every cup of tea. I mean, how it all happened, that was just chance of sitting there, having a few beers, getting up like a carry. It was a group who got up with Glenn up at this presentation night. And my mate said, oh, it sounded all right, that. I've got a blow the music business. Next thing, we're in a house. Next, we're in a studio. Next thing, it's... It's cool. But it's singing is, is fantastic. The actual act of singing is oh, makes I, you I, happy, I, doesn't it? Gives oh, you endorphins. Yeah. Well I've viewed it in music, Glenn likes his music. I know Glenn like the you know, big fan of the Eagles and too. Mm. I would tell it I like the Eagles, but they want my cup of tea as no. such. You know, I, I can listen to the Eagles, I was wrong, but um he liked his music, I like the music and uh, you know it was one of them as it started progressing down the line we thought I thought, you know what? I'm not bothered if people take the Mickey out with I just thought exactly. I love I love music and whether it's a flop whether it's a hit, whether whatever it is, it's a chance when you get older, you look back and think, I could have, I could have made a, a single or a whatever it was. Uh, we could have done that, and I thought, you know what, it's worth doing. And it, people still talk about it today, right? It was 1987 that, and people still talk. Wherever I go in the country, somebody will shout some question, and nine times out of ten, the question is, you're not singing Diamond Lights today, are you? 1987, that people still remember that record, which is unbelievable when I look back. You're another big hit. World in motion, mm. but they, why weren't you in the video? We weren't. No, no, I was in it. France, so they wouldn't let you come to, to film it. No, what happened with that was they. I, I came on France and won the hotel at Burnham Beaches, and they came in and they said we're doing a, a World Cup song, and everybody went, oh, not another one, that type of thing. And then they said um, we're looking for some volunteers. New Order's doing it, so me, Gaza, Peter Beardsley, Steve McMahon, John Barnes. I think it was five work went. Yeah, we'll come. So it wasn't far where we were cutting it. And we, we got in the car and we, we drove down to this, it was like a house with a studio in it. And uh, Lars was there. He was uh, Keith Allen, the actor. And he was brilliant. He was like there and he got to go and got a few beers. And all we had to basically shout was, England. Barnsley obviously did the rap bit, but all, also, all I wanted us for was just to keep going, England. So we thought, yeah, well, it's a day out. Get away from the hotel, a few beers. We had, we had a great laugh, great doing it. To be fair, when you drove away and we went back, we thought nothing of it. We thought, yeah, it was a good day, that. And obviously, listen, depending on how the team do, depending on how the record did. And because we started going through the tournament, all of a sudden people think, quarterfinals, mm. semifinals. The song got played more. People were buying it more. The video, it was basically, was an after event, which what they said was, we're going to use footage of England playing. But the actual video of, you know, the jumping around bit, I wasn't there. And all they said was, look, you know, see how it goes. And I always remember when we got back from the World Cup and I went, I had another year more say. And when I came home, about a year later, more, whatever, I, was, I think it was my first season here. It's Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. And then I got a knock on the door and bloke gave us this big parcel. And I thought, what's that? And he went, I don't know, delivery thing. So I right, opened it up and it was a, uh, a gold disc. <laughs> because you sing on it, you're entitled to the gold disc. Even though you're only showing England, you got a gold disc. So you thought... I didn't get my diamond lights, but at least I got one eventually for, um, for with the England song. Uh, if your if your chip, if your lob against Bodo mm. Eldner had gone in, you'd have been able to go back to Marseille and take the, the Mickey out of yeah. the Kaiser. When you went back to Marseille and you found that the bugger who'd knocked you out of the semi-final of the World Cup was the no, was France a bit France a bit more a bit mean, but he was a top guy. After the semis, even on the pitch, you know, he didn't go celebrating with the German. He came around all nice. and, and he was like, look, nice. you know. Listen, he was good as he won it. He knew it was, there was nothing between them. Yeah. And we basically knew whoever won that would win it. Yeah. And that was the game. That was the final, really, because you, you basically knew. We watched Argentina. Yeah, they had some talented players, but they were more of a clogging side, more of a physical side, not Argentina, which we picture. So we thought, yeah, it would be a grind, but you'd fancy your chances against them. 
We knew Germany, when we watched it at home and going on, Germany were the best team we'd saw. But they were also complimentary of us. And listen, Germany England will always be a good game. After the game, France and Matthias plays out. Well, fantastic. No one us, we would have ran off to the crowds and gone mad and like, you know, they were, the German squad were brilliant. Class, yeah. yeah, they were very good. And, and it was funny when I got back, uh, I had a few weeks in Newcastle, a couple of weeks, and I obviously went back to Marseille to start the pre-season. I was a bit behind because of the tournament. And uh, walked in the change room and he'd been appointed manager of Marseille. So when I got back, I read it. And obviously I knew, I thought, oh God. Anyway, walked in the change room and uh, he turned around and he went, ah, oh, Chris. I went, uh, hello, Franz. He went, my favourite English footballer. <laughs> and that's why he, he just said that, nice. like that. And I just thought, yeah, yeah, nice. you know, brilliant. And uh, But he was a really nice guy. He let you know about the football if you weren't doing it, whether whoever you were, he'd there. Uh, if you weren't doing enough or doing what he wanted, then he'd hit you with it. Uh, but as a guy, fantastic. I make no bones about it. I'm not embarrassed about the fact that, you know, I passionately love football, it gets me excited. But I like the little patterns within football, which makes me a train spotter. Mm. So I'm not proud of it. But it immediately takes me back to, I think, one of the first games you'll ever have remembered watching, which I think was in your auntie's house, which is when England played Germany in 1966. Watford, yeah, was in And you're seeing Beckenbauer that day and you end up playing for him. And you end up playing for Jackie Charlton as well. I don't think there's another footballer in the world who played for two of the guys in that pitch that day, but you. Yeah, Jack was a, Jack was a character and a half as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I never really thought of it like that. Um, but you did, you, you recall watching him win the World Oh, that yeah. was my first sort of game I really watched, yeah. It was uh, my holidays then. My dad used to have a, <clears throat> a motorbike and sidecar and uh, we used to travel, believe it, from Gateshead to Watford, which used to take, <laughs> I think it was about eight, nine, ten hours. Wait, wait, this is a, a motorbike and a sidecar? A BSA, and it's him and you? A BSA 650, my mum on the back, it was a three-seated sidecar. I was in the front, one of my brothers in the middle, and my other brother at the back. And we used to play, when we were going down here one, we used to jump and change seats in the sidecar. <laughs> and we used to have to guess who was sitting in seat. The one in the front had to guess who was sitting in seat one in seat two. So that was how we you know, fulfilled, and we'd stop off halfway down and for a couple of or whatever. Uh, yeah, but we used to travel to Watford on a BSA a motorbike, six feet. And at nine times out of ten, it broke down. Did it feel daring? Did it feel like... Not at the time, no. But when you look at it, it was, it was a little bit like watching on the buses. <laughs> you know, Harold Robbins and, uh, you know, when they start that motorbike. And, but, yeah, it was a three-seat sidecar and uh, we should set off from uh, Gateshead and get to Watford. And we'd have, like, a week in Watford or ten days. My mum's sisters all lived there. So I would go down there for, like... But I remember watching the game. Obviously, I was five, whatever. And my dad was saying, you know, watch this sitting watching it. I remember after playing with a, kicking around a balloon in the house and going in the back garden and playing. And, but yeah, it was sort of the first game I watched, you know, actually sat down and watched for a five-year-old and five and a half, whatever it was. It was quite hard to sit for all that period of time because you want to go and do things. But I actually sat and watched that game, you know. And, um, you know, my dad was like, watch this because, you know, it's a bit of history, really. If England win it, it's, you know. So uh, I remember that. Your, your talent was really clear throughout your school years and then the sort of, you know, it didn't happen because Coventry thought mm. maybe you were, I don't know, too small or whatever. It was just, you know, because you're height now. It's hard to understand. But a guy I want to ask you about because he's very proud of, of your development is Arthur Cox. Mm. And, and what fascinates me is that, you know, he says he bullied you. Did. Why did he bully you? And could somebody do that these days? He bullied us because he could see the talent I had. And he used to think I was, he thought I probably had an attitude problem. I didn't have an attitude problem. I was shy, very shy. And he 
thought I had an attitude problem because it looked like I wasn't interested because I never spoke, I never... So he must have thought, he's not bothered. When you come out of a, a factory work to go to a professional and all of a sudden you're training with professionals who you're probably watching or reading about in the local papers and all of a sudden you're training with them mm -hmm. from a non-league setup to that. You're just sort of thrown in. That's why I can see a lot of young players who get pushed aside and disregarded and said, no, nah, you just haven't got it. If you go on trial, I'm going on trial at Sunderland, it's uh, 18, 19, and I was petrified, you know, training with these pros and who you've been watching. It's intimidating, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. And you always get one or two nice lads who will come up and say, oh, you know, you're enjoying it. If you, you know. Most of them just take it as if they think, well, easy, you know, you sort of go in there and you, you don't know what you're doing because they are natural. They come in, the kit's there, they put it on, they do this, they sit there. To you, it's like, what is this, you know? And it was just shyness, really. And Arthur, I think Arthur got the wrong end of where he'd come in, obviously took over from Bill McGarry and, you know, the team was struggling and he looked at the reserves and I was just starting out and I was on fire on the reserves. Pre-season I found hard because it was the first pre-season I've ever done where you just thought, wow. I always said pre-season was ridiculous. The way they ran you, more Farrow wouldn't do as many miles as what we did. And it was, when I went to France, it opened my eyes up about pre-seasons. But this was just like slog. You know, and I found it hard. I was still developing. I was skinny. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd grew working in the fact that uh, from 16 to 18, I grew it to, to me hate, but I was like a rake. And he must have looked at this kid and thought, doesn't say anything, gets on with it, but lacks a bit of confidence. But to him, it was maybe he thought he's not that bad. What did he do? Everything was basically on me kiss. Whatever I did, I couldn't do anything right. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in training, you know, I'd go past two blokes and score, and he'd go, don't do it enough. It's not good enough. You, you do it every now and again. It's not good enough. Or your final pass, or your final cross, or your your final shot or whatever you did if you did it right it was you don't do it enough and if you didn't do it right obviously you lost the ball it would be there you go again it was just whatever you did you just thought if I scored two should have scored three eight great crosses in should have been nine so it was never a pat on the back it was always could do more always could do more and for two and a half years it was this was basically the life of I used to hide in the training ground I used to come in and I used to sneak in the changing rooms. I never used to go through, because he'd pick on us for anything. Mm -hmm. So it was like, basically, at school, somebody grabbing you every day and taking your pocket money off you. Mm. He'd fine us for the slightest things. Why didn't that break you? Because I, 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 I believed I had the ability. And by the way, there was a lot of times I spoke to like, some of the older players, and I used to say, I've had enough of him. Mm. I'm, I don't know whether to put a, a transfer request. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I just, I'm sick of it. And uh, it went... You know, and then Keegan, Kevin Keegan came, you know, and then we got promoted. It was basically that year we got promoted, uh, so it was like two and a half years into it of playing, where he actually caught us one day and he went, pennies dropped. But then after that was sort of a, but I don't want you to take your foot off the gas, mm. you know, that type of thing. But he says, the pennies dropped, you're consistent now. Which yeah. for him, that, that must have been a big thing for him yeah. to say. Yeah, you know, it was like, what, you're actually praising us? It took mm. two and a half years to get a pat on the back. And he just said... You've got the consistency, you know, you've got... What he might have thought was attitude of, it doesn't matter if it happens, it doesn't matter. It, it did matter to us, it, but maybe it's my body language and the way I was, maybe it's that he thought I wasn't as interested or as um, focused or the passion and desire what you need to go and succeed in football. I did have it, it was just I was shy, but he obviously took it the other way. You've used a phrase, body language, um, which I know you meant it in a different way, but it's part of the reason that we're all here today talking to you. 
in that I warned you before this chat, mm. I'd say things that would embarrass you. Mm. But these are sincere. I, I think that in many ways you were England's Zidane. I compare your balance and your vision and your ability with the ball and what you did with the ball, but what you could do to other people around you, which, which was pretty special. But another thing that annoys me is when I read people writing about you and they would say enigmatic or languid, which wasn't true. I think mm. you were very, very fast with the ball, mm. which is a rare trick. And you reminded me of Michael Loudrop yeah, and yeah. his ability to go past people at a fair physique too. Mm. Like, But are you able to define how you do the things you do with, not with the ball, but dropping the shoulder or showing people one way and going the other or all the various things that made you an elite footballer on the world level? Did it just happen because your brain gave you messages to your body or did you think about it or did it change from when you were skinny to when you were you know physically intimidating no uh, when I was started playing kicking a ball around when I was four five three four five six my dad was a massive football uh, loved it he loved football he'd do his work but football was his passion uh, I told our brothers so I was out on the field at three four playing but at five six I was um doing the body swerve then. I remember when I was six, seven, eight, I remember doing that trick. I, you know, people always say to me about, yeah, I'm a great believer in practising with the ball, getting the feel of a ball, passing the ball. But you can't go into training every day and say, right, lads, it's what we're doing now, we're going to do body swerves, step overs, Cruyff turns. I've seen a lot of players on training grounds walk, do a step over, and I'll go do that on a Saturday. It looks all right, that. You might work. No, I'm not doing that. Why? Well, I might trot on the ball or I might, do it wrong. And what if you do it right? No, I'm not doing it. To me, it was a natural thing to go and do. That's how I played. And the great thing I had growing up was, my dad obviously was a big influence because he'd be always in the ear. But I never had a manager, whether it be a school teacher, whether it be under 18, uh, junior teams. Even when I went to clubs, really, I never really had a guy who'd pulled me to one side and went, Stop dribbling. Stop doing that. All he used to say was, give him the ball. Give him the ball and let him get on with it. And yes, some days it frustrates because it doesn't happen. For whatever reason, the kids are either good or you read you or you just, it's just not there. But the art of, of beating people is how close you get to the man. You know, I, I watch now on the TV and I see players running and they're getting within five yards of the fullback or the centre-half or the midfield player, whoever they're playing against, and they start doing step-overs and they start doing this either foot over the ball, over the ball, but the guy's five yards away. You're never going to beat a guy five yards away. The object of beating a guy is getting as close as you can basically to you within a yard, because that is when basically you're going to go one way or the other or he's going to nick the ball off you. You can't beat a guy from five yards. He's got to be a very bad defender if you're beating a guy from five yards away, but that way. So to me, you know, somebody says, well, how far do you run the ball to the guy? I went, you don't, it's just not, it happens. And I'm always a great believer, when, you, when you're a footballer, you're born with your talent you've got. Now it's how you put together, will you fail mentally, physically, will you not be good enough that way? Listen, you, you can go and watch a Sunday morning game, you'll see a kid with a trick, but you just think mentally all, the whole package, not good enough to step up ladders. But that level, he's a very good player. But you're born with it. I, I was, because it was to me, could you show us how to do a body swerve? And I went, I can show you, but you can't do it in the games. Because people don't sell a body swerve enough. You've got to sell it as if... I always just say, but imagine you are going to go that way. And I used to look at the defender's point of view. And I'd say, if I'm going that way, he thinks I'm going that way, obviously. 
And it's just that last second where you think, I'm not, mate. You think I am. <laughs> so you've got to really exaggerate it as if to think the ball is getting left behind in a way because I'm taking it off. I'm taking off from my right foot. I'm off. And it's just that last second where you're off. Here you think where well, he is. He's going. He goes. And then you take it with your left foot, which I do. Obviously, if you're a right foot, you do it the other way. And that's how you beat the guy. But if I run up with the guy, I've seen it work down his wrong from five yards. But the time when it works and when it really works is you've got to convince that man. It's a confidence trick. Go that way. It's yeah. a con, it's oh, a con yeah. artist, isn't it? It's like a step over. You know, it looks like you're taking the ball with you and you don't. You just roll your foot over it. But the guy thinks you're kicking the ball. So he goes that way and then you change direction and take the ball in your foot. You know, anybody can do this. But the art is when to do it, and it's that split second. You know, when you watch Lionel Messi, when you watch Cristiano Ronaldo when he's, best, when he's on the, you know, when he's dribbling, mm. all these players that we want to talk about, who you'll mention, you know, your Ronaldinho's over the years, and all these players, and Tommy Hutchinson's or John Robertson's, they used to drag the ball, they'd have the ball right up the people. You used to torment the, the fullback, you know, because there's always a play and you back off, back off, back off, back off. So you used to think, he never goes past us, but you think, I don't need to go past you. Because you just back off till I get to an area where I can cross it or pass it. So you're doing me a favour, really. Then you'll get the ones who think, what I'll do is I'll back, 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 then I'll dive in. And then again, that's timing to see him coming, that movement, that split second. When you see him come to tackle you, you move the ball and he's lying on his backside now, or he's stuck and you're away. You know, then it's like, show him this way, show him that way. And I always tell a story where I remember playing against Maldini at Wembley for England, and I think it was about 80, 80, 80 I think he was 20, 90, 21. And I was raving about this kid. And don't get me wrong, he, what a player he was. Mm. Anyway, I played, and it was in a midweek game friendly for England against Italy, and I tortured him. I played right. And I always remember the game, I come off and I thought, that, you know, that's how you play as a winger type thing. And I was like, the Italians were like, can't believe it. <laughs> Never seen anybody do that. And the press, man, you know, and then when I, you know, years on, I've always said, every Italian player I met, Mancini was manager of Man City, and I went in the tunnel and I was median. And they always used to say the same thing, Viali the lot, the only man to embarrass Maldini. <laughs> and I used to think, is that what I remembered for in Italy, just for that, is that it? And anyway, years ago, and um, I was playing Sunday morning football in Sheffield and uh, played against a young fullback, pub football. And this young kid bought every trick, every trick. And I had this kid spinning round. And I was 42, 43. The centre-half shouting across. Totally before the game. He always does the same thing. So and then I'm going to the centre-half. Well, you come out here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then he's saying, if I come out there, I'll put you across the touchline yeah, and all that. Yeah. I went, yeah, I've yeah. heard it all before, you know. Anyway, this young kid's like, oh, I'm sick of this. Final whistle going, this kid, centre-half, on his left-backs, on his case all the time. So as the game finishes, I walk off and I go, listen, mate, don't worry about that. And he went, I went, Maldini fell for the same thing. <laughs> and the kid went, he sort of grew in hate. Yeah, and went, yeah. Then he went to send off it, Maldini fell out. <laughs> I always used to say to Pinot, I said, don't worry, Maldini fell for the same trick, mate. I, you've, you've encapsulated two things there, the beauty of the sport and the reason we're all here, but also the fact you're a good man because... If you've got a little kid tied up and not that, like, it's easy to humiliate him and laugh at him, but you've made, oh, him, yeah. you've made, him, you've made him feel good. Also, we, we talked in the journey down about how often we meet great athletes, great sportsmen and women who, who can't describe what they do, but you can, and you obviously thought about it. And you've made me think about Shane Warne bowling somebody yeah. up and how they get into the batsman's head. Yeah. And you were doing the same one-on-one. Oh, it's, cat it's cat and mouse. Listen, you know, when I first started playing football, I knew, I knew, and I used to say to the ref, 
from the kickoff, I'd say ref. If I was playing on the wing or I was playing something, whatever I was playing, I'd say to the ref, I'd say, ref, by the way, I'm just going to warn you now. That left back's going to put me in the stand in the first 10 minutes of this game. So I'm just marking your card. So I need a little bit of help here. You know what you're on about? And I went, you watch within the first 10 minutes of this game, he will boot me 10 yards of me own half or around the halfway line. That manager will have told him. How can you say that? And I went, well, watch. 10 minutes, wallop. So I got to learn, because I played Sunday morning football at 13, 14, I was playing pub football then. I learned how to ride tackles. You can imagine I was only like, at 14, I was like five foot three, five foot two. And I'm playing against men on a Sunday morning. I just had the same tricks as I had when I played against whoever. I had the same tricks at 13 and I did have when I was 30. So all of a sudden, I'm beating a bloke who's probably had 10 pints the night before. And he's getting embarrassed by a 13-year-old kid. So I knew, and the lads used to say it was other blokes, you know what you're doing, you're taking the mail out and full back, and he's going to boot you at some stage because he's sick of you. So I used to think, right, well, if it, but I learned through playing like that levels how to ride tackles. Could see it coming. Listen, you used to get caught now and again, mm. but you could ride most of the tackles. Explain ride. Basically, you know that there's an opportunity when it's, the ones that prefer was when it's on its way to you, mm -hmm. that is their chance to think it's going to be close. If he sprints to the ball and I'm going to receive it, that's their time to lunge in and hit you. So a full sliding tackle. Or, or just, yeah, just swing as if to think, I'm going to get the ball, but I realistically, I'm going to take you out as well. And that was the ball. So when you got the ambulance ball coming across with the blue light flashing on it, you should think, here we go. You'd see the guy coming, and I should think, right, so all I'm going to do is nick it around the corner and jump. So as he came in, you'd just nick it, ride the tackle, obviously, and you'd go over with it, and you'd land on the ground. And you'd just sit on the ground, and you'd go to the ref. <laughs> and then he'd go... They always give him a warning first. Yeah. So I say, why did you give him a warning? <laughs> and he used to say, what do you mean? I said, why did you give him a warning? So what you're saying to him is, have another go at it. You've got a free one. Yeah. There's your free tackle. You've got another one. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew then I thought, right. Well, I used to then think, well, if I do it again, I'm on a yellow. Now, if, to me, if I got him on a yellow, he was then He was finished. The game was over. Because he didn't touch me again. Because the next time it was red. So once you got him on a yellow, you thought, right, here we go. He cannot make just another tackle like that again. Nowhere near one like that. He can't pull you back if you go on the outside or whatever. He can't, he can't take you out of the game anymore. So he's got to play as a fullback now against you. It's like he can't touch you anymore. So that was when he used to think, We're on. this is where I... In my mind, it was me via the left back. He's booked. It's game over for him. And a lot of clubs would sub him or change the right back yeah. to the left back. So, you know, that was it. But when you're grown up, I knew... All the tackles coming in, I learned to raid them, and it was all part of growing up. So when I got the pro level, obviously it's quicker, they're a bit more cute at how they do it. You know, but you know the same thing was going to happen. Mm. So it was just a matter of raiding it. Okay, you've talked about two types of bravery there because you talked about knowing that something physical is coming in, you know, you either put up with that or you don't. But you've also talked about risk. Football is very conservative. A lot of footballers are scared of being humiliated. We talked before we put the mic on about the dressing room at Marseille, the Frenchmen mm. actually taking three months to own up they could speak English because they were worried that, the, you said, yeah. they were worried that their teammates would take the piss out of them. Now, these are grown men, venerated around the world, earning millions of euros and, and brilliantly skilled at something. Yeah, yeah. Yet they're scared of being exposed for speaking English to you. And they're, or they're scared of trying a trick on a Saturday. They're scared yeah. about what if it doesn't come off. Yeah. That's a different kind of bravery. That in life, mm. you, when you, you seem to have innately got, like, I don't mind. I'm going to be, live with style or live with humour or mm. take a risk of 
a shot or a chip or a, or a nutmeg won't come off, but you, you, you don't care about that. No, I, I think football for me was an entertainment business. I think you pay money to be entertained. Listen, if you go to a stadium and there's 36,000 there, there's 56,000 there, there's 80,000 there, listen, if you're a, a, an artist, a singer in a, a group, you must think this is, what, this is what you play for. You know, when they go on that stage and the, the stadium's full and they start belting their songs out and the crowd's going mad, they must think this is as good as it gets. So to me, I was always brought up that it's, a, it's an entertainment business, you know, and people want to be, I used to love it when, even with Hillsborough when I was at Wednesday, and I would be standing on the right south stand where the tunnel is, and the boys get transferred across to Johnny Sheridan, pings one across to us. Our new round is, as the ball was coming, I used to think, well, he's not going to full back on, get there, he's too far away. I would bring the ball down, bring it down, and then I'm going to think, right, that's it, I'm coming for you. As soon as the ball came to my chest, I turned out the corner of my eye, I could see everybody in the stand go, <laughs> and you could hear the seats go, flap, flap, flap. <laughs> and I used to think, that's what I come for. I used to think, that's what I come for. Now I'd run at the full back, listen, I may cock it up, I might have fell off the ball, I might have run it out of play, he may, he may take it off us. But I just thought, you know, I'll go past him, you know, and he could hear a, you know, when is it Marseille? You know, the velodrome, fantastic, the old stadium, you know, the old bicycle track. Atmosphere was fantastic. It was, it was all round the ground at Marseille. It's not just about an end where British grounds always had a cockpit. Yeah. And the rest of it was all people sat like that way in a way. The club and whatever. At Marseille, was just the whole ground was fanatical. Yankees and the thingies and the ultras. And it was just non-stop. So when you obviously got people on toast and you were doing things to people and, you know, it, it, and literally, it's here. It, you can understand why people wanted to kick it, isn't it? Because... I did embarrass a lot of people, and when I look back, I used to say to them after, I'm not embarrassing you, I've got nothing, I don't even know you. Mm. I'm doing my job. At the end of the day, I wasn't going up there and being a Harlem Globetrotter and just doing it because it was a testimonial games or benefiting it. There was points at stake, there was money at stake, there was everything at stake. So the team would say, they didn't ever see anything, but I just looked at them and they used to thought, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. But they used to thought, because there's something at the end of it, there's a cross, a shot, something's going to happen, or I'll roll somebody in. That's why they gave the ball. And yes, in the, in the mean state of before you did that, you might have went past two people or embarrassed the one guy to, you're saying you nutmegged them or you did something to them where the crowd all went. Well, so you just think, well, you're getting the whole package here. I was two different people, mate. On the field, I had more con as much confidence as anybody, really. I, I believed I could do things with the football and it was like a stage. But when I got off the field, I was reserved. So people used to see this character on the field of smile and joke and... Yeah, all the daft things I did, you know, which was amusing. And they saw this guy on the field who smiled at the cameras and uh, as the game was going on. And, you know, I remember doing a game at Nancy, I think, and the game was going on. I was saying autographs on the Twitter. <laughs> and, it, you know, but to the French, it was like, wow, we've never seen a guy. We've never had a guy like this before. I was just doing daft things. But I was just enjoying myself. And when I got off the field, people would thought I was the same guy on the field who basically was a, a bit of a... A joke, I a bit of this, wanted to do this. I wasn't. I like to come off it. I didn't like being recognised off the field. I'm not one of them who parades around, you know, um, I like to come off, I shut the door. That's it. Nobody sees us, nobody knows us. Yeah, I go in the village, I've got a local, I've got some good friends and all that. But, I'm, you know, people say, oh, we're going downtown Saturday. I'm not going down. You know, and it's not because you, you think I'm, I'm above that or I don't want... I get embarrassed a bit by recognition. And I always have. I've not, I've not really enjoyed that side of it. I love the football side of it when you're on the field because it's freedom and you, you're doing your job. Mm -hmm. 
So when the job's finished, you become who you want to be, who you are, actually who you are. And I, I do nothing like that off the field. You know, I just talk football. Everybody wants to talk football because that's football. But um, no, I don't do anything uh, off the field. And people may actually, a lot of people say, he's quite reserved, quite shy, don't see a lot of him. And, but the field was my stage. We, we most recently spoke to Tyler Nicholas, mm. who obviously was a yeah. pain in the butt for you at Spurs, which he admits yeah, himself. Yeah. And Charlie spoke a lot about just what you're touching on, that he was regarded as flamboyant. Champion Charlie. Charlie. Yeah. Sometimes a show-off and that. Whereas he was saying that throughout his life and his career, he surprised people in that a manager or an agent would say, well, you, you'll get on with him, but that, that quiet fellow, you want And Charlie's like, well, I'm completely different. I'm quite happy in the company of maybe a quiet or a laid-back guy. I'm not That's showy. Yeah. And he spoke really emotionally sometimes, but also really frankly. And he's just a heart and a sleeve type of guy who, who isn't particularly attracted by the fame or by the notoriety. And um, he talked about when he moved to London that it had been an immense struggle for him. So he had to move his sister in to try and give him company and support, which is a very brave thing to admit. Before I go back to, there's a piece of showmanship I want to, I want to ask you about what was going through your mind. I thought you were really brave about a decade ago when you talked in your book about being quite depressed about really struggling and you talked about you didn't know then you should go and speak to somebody, maybe speak to Arthur Cox, mm. but you raised it and talked about the fact that it's a much more common thing for footballers to have a happy face and look rich and successful, but behind the scenes, it bears no relation to mm. their, their life as an ordinary human being, does it? No, because as I say, it's, it's, you, you, everybody knows who we are in a way, people who follow football and to the fans, whether they've got 30,000 or 50,000, you know, to them it's what they see on the football pitch. Hmm. But there is two lives, you know, you like to get away from the football. And yeah, listen, it works in your favour. Sometimes you can be in a restaurant and it's, it's complimentary because you're so-and-so and this is that and this is free and that's free and that's free and it benefits. But you just like to cut a line somewhere and think, you know, I used to go on holiday to America a lot because deliberately in America, nobody knew who we were, oh, hmm. I was anyway. Hmm. So I enjoyed America. It was like being a normal person. And I, I got to a stage where even when at Sheffield Wednesday where I got depression a little bit came because they were expecting more every game. So all of a sudden you've, you've got this image built around you of, well, you know, every time I got the ball they wanted us to dribble past two, three people, cross it, somebody headed it in, or pass it. Every game became, and it eventually it got to us where I thought, I can't do anymore. And what, I just can't keep going to another level of what they want. So all of a sudden you start, it gets to you a bit. So all of a sudden, where you're out there playing with a smile, it becomes a bit of, you know, when you, the ball would come to you and you'd see two guys running across towards you and you thought, no, drop it down, pass it back into midfield or whatever. And you'd hear like, oh, you know, like a, a disappointment in the stadium as if to say, oh. And you just thought, you can't do it all the time. Mm. Nobody can. Mm. And, but it gets to you because you keep thinking, you know, when you got the ball, you've got to do something great all the time. And it does get you. There's no doubt about it. I, know, I don't know modern players are like, but when we were playing, it would be that as well. If you went and saw a manager and said, oh, I feel a little bit dingy about it. Yeah. They'd say, then old school would be, shut up. Don't, don't, get don't, out. Don't admit a weakness. Yeah, get out. What are you talking about? Where in modern day, it would be like, hey, we've got a guy coming in to talk to you. We'll send you to so-and-so. <laughs> it's the way the game's changed. Old school was, was there something wrong with you? Mm. And you'd be like, well, the, get out. You know, just get on with it. And, and, you know, it's changed the game now. It got to a level where I just thought, you can't do this week in, week out, what you're doing. 
yeah, maybe with a bit of lucky cut, but it gets to you. It did get to me where I thought, I, I can't do it. I just can't keep doing what people expect. You must moderate when we come off this subject, because it's your choice. But then for anybody listening to this, I'll say for sure that now the, the, the fact is, if anybody's suffering from that at mm. all, find somebody, talk oh, to definitely. somebody. You're not alone. Yeah. It's not a weakness. It's not imagined. No. Speak and share. Yeah. I think is outside people totally in, 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 in everyday in life, life, in life. Share. In life. Be open. But as somebody who's annoyed the hell out of you when you share a room with them, but who's <laughs> very, very dear to you, Gaza wasn't just this hyperactive, quite witty, funny, generous man. He, you know, he'd suffered tremendously difficult problems in his life. Are you as thrilled as I am to see him mm. just slightly finding a balance and equilibrium and, and looking happy and healthy again? I am. I'm, I've spoken to him often and on. Obviously, moved down south and I've had the odd call with a chat with him. Not a lot, to be honest. But yeah, I read like everybody else and I hear, you know, and he's looking good at the minute, yeah. Isn't he? I think... If you can just keep them like that now. But, you know, the, the downside for Paul will be something will trigger which will upset him or somebody who he knows something might happen to. You know, something will, will trigger something which he could easily go back down the old route. That's what we've seen basically over the years. Something happens, he turns to the bottle. You know, something happens, he turns to the bottle. You know, there's ways of dealing with things. Obviously, his ways, his mind, it must be, I'm very unhappy now, so the best cure will be to get drunk. You know, yes, he's had help, and he's had a lot of help, by the way. You know, but with Paul, is, you see him get into... I've seen him now, and he looks great at the minute. He's doing the question answers, he's going around the country, and, you know, whatever he's doing, and he's got something on his mind, and he's working, and he's got a purpose. The problem with Paul will be is something will trigger something off, which sends him down that road. Then that's when people have got to... Or he's got to fight. That's where he thinks... No, I'm not going down that road. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to go that way. And I think something which can easily upset them, where we might think, I'm going to talk to somebody or look at it and deal with it in a way which most people would probably deal with it, he may turn to alcohol or something. You see, I'm, I want to be because his, his life became such a struggle and he's a human being, not an ex-footballer, you know, I, I worry sometimes about talking about the things that made him such a national hero beyond his football, because these are also the things that led him into difficulties. Mm. But from my limited experience of meeting him and talking to him, number one, again, beyond his skills, he was a lovely man, a really, really nice, warm human being, mm. and outrageously funny. I mean, off the scale funny. Mm. Is that a fair representation of the guy you knew when he was at his happiest and fittest and you know he was whole as a person? Oh, listen, the best nights of my life have been with him. And even me missus will say the same. We had some unbelievable times with him. He was totally off the cuff. You didn't know what was going to happen. Or nine times out of ten, it would let to a bit of trouble or headlines. To him, it was nothing if saying, what's wrong with that? But yeah. I said, I used to say, don't do that. Why? Your poor gas going. It'll be front page. Even if it was like anything little trivial, you'll make the papers. He didn't see that. He couldn't see that. He used to think, what for? He, he didn't understand that. And that's that. the point. He wasn't doing it for effect, was no. he? No. He's got this natural torrent yeah. of inventiveness and He'll wit. He'll just do and... something. He's off the cuff. You don't know what's going to happen with him. He'll do things where you think, what are you doing that for? You know, to him, it's nothing. It's like, well, I just fancy doing it. I just, you know, sitting in the hand, this happened. And, but to him, he didn't see the consequences of Paul Gascoigne in front page again. And um, so a lot of things he let the trouble. But total, um, he gave the shit off his back. I used to say he was too generous to people, the things he used to do. Great company. 
you're always on the edge with them though. You didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, literally, you didn't know what was going to happen. So it made you a little bit... Did you share a room for a Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, first time, he used to sit and I sat on a bed and he'd be on the other bed and then he'd say, do you want a cup of tea? And I'd go, yeah, go on. Go, Sugar, yeah, one, yeah, okay. And I'd be watching the telly and he'd come and put it down and he'd go like, what's that? And, you know, he'd put bubble bath in it. Just, you know, you'd say, well, what are you doing that for? You know, it's a waste of a cup of tea, that. And he'd be like, I don't know, I just went and got the bubble bath. So then we'd share rooms. You know, and I remember sharing rooms with Paul and we'd be 10 floors up in a hotel with Spurs or whoever. He'd go down, lads would bring like cheese and biscuits to the bedroom. He would bring a dozen eggs. And I'd say, what you brought these eggs? What's this all about? And he'd open the window and he'd, if it was like across the road, it was a cash pump or something like that. <laughs> and by the way, he can throw, he had a right arm on him, Paul. I mean, he could throw a, like anything out of his hands. Seriously? Oh, a great throwback. He could have been a baseball player. He could have been anything, by the way. Anyway, yeah. people were cash pointing, and you just hear, and you see all these eggs exploding, and you think, people were like that. You know, it was just like a bird had dropped an egg on them. It was like, and I just think, I was sitting there, we sat at the window all night like this, eggs, batting them, thing like that. <laughs> they wouldn't move. Like, like an egg sniper. He'd just, he'd just sit there waiting. <laughs> and when people would come to the cash point, he'd go, well, one cut. I've got one, I've got one. And I'd be just lying on the bed watching the telly and I'd think, I'd say, Paul, you're going to get in trouble. Because if they turn around and they see you, not, but nobody knew where they were coming from. You know, it was like six floors up. And he's like that. And they were like, they'd take like missiles. And I'd say, you're going to, and you didn't, obviously, but it would be something where you think, why don't you just bring cheese and biscuits like everybody else, or a yogurt or something, you know, a bar of chocolate. Why do you bring a dozen eggs with you everywhere we go? But that was him, totally. He didn't look at the consequences. To him, it was a bit of fun. To other people, it would be like, no, you can't do that. But to him, it was just, well, you're having a bit of fun. You're different from him, but, you know, for those... We, we've found out that a lot of the people who share our love of football, you know, are much, much younger than me. Mm. And therefore, they haven't seen all the things that I'm, I'm going to talk about. But as well as Magic Chris, you were known as Magic Chris in France. You did some of the things you've been talking about. I didn't know about signing autographs during a game. But you would make... Bugs Bunny ears. Yeah. You were you were always full of wit and sparkle. It was the image of somebody enjoying their. For example, I remember the first time I ever saw you play that you really struck me. You were playing on. It looked like the Somme at Fratton Park up front with Keegan oh, yeah, Gaisley, yeah, yeah. and I think you each scored, and you you scored from from a yeah. ridiculous yeah, angle. Yeah. And I went, "Whoa, there's somebody I'm going to watch." But when you moved abroad, there wasn't a lot of foreign football on television no. then. Which is why when Gazzetta came on, everybody fell in love with Italian football. But we were shown clips on either Grandstand yeah, or World yeah, Sport, whatever yeah. it was. And the one that everybody loved was when you'd been at Marseille, not that long, and you're probably your biggest rivals were Bordeaux, but Paris Saint-Germain is a big rival. And you, for anybody who hasn't seen it, Chris takes the ball, there's a nice ball over the top, you take it in your chest, twirl the goalkeeper around, and then back heel the ball into yeah. the goal. Do you, you and Gaza share wit and humour and an enjoyment of life. And I think there's a correlation between that and, and little madcap moments and what you, what you do with the ball. You treat wit and jokes and funny things with the camera the same way as you treat the ball. Mm. It's like, oh, I'll tell you what I could do now. Yeah. What, what, I mean, that moment, what was in your head? Can you remember that, that, what was in your head when you, when you decided to back heel it? I remember we were in a hotel and I had been struggling form-wise. Uh, the heat had got us out. I'd missed pre-season with Tottenham. Um, I went basically to Marseille on a Wednesday. The first game was on a Saturday. So I'd had three days training. I had nanny pre-season. They'd had a month or three weeks, sorry, Marseille. I was well behind. It was boiling. 
we went to Lyon on the Friday, flew up. Saturday, I thought, well, I was sitting and stand and watch the game. Uh, Bernard Tappy said, you're sub. And I says, I'm not fit. You know, I need some pre-season. They tried to run us that in three days in the heat, which absolutely killed us. I didn't feel great. Uh, half-time was 4-0. Half-time, they put us on. I actually ended up wearing the captain's armband for the last 50 minutes because Papland pulled his armstring yeah. and they put the armband around me. And I couldn't speak a word of French. I had a clue about anything. Anyway, Mick McCarthy was playing for uh, Leon. When Papan used to wear his wife's air hostess handkerchief thing, oh, yeah, yeah. neckerchief, neckerchief, and uh, that was his armband. <laughs> so he took it off, and it was about this long. You know, it was a good day, massive thing. Papan went, "Yeah, put that on." So um, I went, "What can I do with that?" And Mick McCarthy went, "I'll wrap it round your neck." So uh, I went, "Yeah." <laughs> anyway, somebody tied the the band on, and I ended up finishing. But you know, I did all right in that game. It was adrenaline. Then the next game, I was sub, came on. Did okay, but I was struggling in form. I was just struggling with fitness. And I just said, give us, give us two, three months to settle in, get fit, and you'll see. Anyway, that week we played Paris Saint-Germain. It was a few games into the season. On the Monday, I moved out of the hotel. you got to think, I had a daughter, one. I had one car, so I used to go to training. We were training twice a day then. Mrs. was stuck in the hotel all day. It was boiling hot. So it was hard because, you know, communication-wise and things to do. And So I was coming home from training, and I was, you know... It was really hard slog. I'm, you know, and maybe see, oh, shut up, you're in the south of France, and it, listen, life. People life, don't understand the, you know, the massive difference that that level of fitness yeah. will take away from you or give you, yeah. irrespective of your ability. Life's life. Anyway, that week the house would look at to rent the next was actually it was supposed to be finished two months earlier, finished, and they said you can move in. So we moved in on the Monday. All of a sudden, I, I felt a foot taller. I said, right. And I remember shutting the door. We got in. We had the furniture and delivered whatever we had. And, got in and I said to him I said remember I shut the door and I said right it starts now with Marseille career if it doesn't work can't do anything about it but from the day it starts never mind what the previous six games or eight games would have been it starts now and on the Friday we're playing Paris on the TV a Friday night live game and Palace and Marseille detest each other it's like you know because Marseille thinks should be capital anyway all week to build up this that and the other so I thought right this is it I feel great um, fitness was there in my own house shut the door away from everybody and we went um, in the game the ball came I beat the offside trap and um, it was that chest that the goalkeeper who played many years I think with France top goalkeeper went to pick it up and I just got my tour there before him and as I lifted it over his head as it came down I've got at time I thought I'm offside I'm not but you just think putting the net you know if they put the flag up then you think well it wasn't meant to be and as it dropped I don't know why it went through my head about back heeling it I just, as I turned, as I flicked, I sort of lost a bit of balance. And as I watched the ball come down, I was at an angle, really, where, yeah, I could have side-footed it, but I just don't know. I was at the angle, and I just thought, oh. Anyway, I did it, and it, it went in. And then from there, that's where my Marseille career went, took off. And that's where I had the confidence, the belief to do things with the football. You know, from there, it just, that's where it rocketed. But that goal, you know, was shown and shown. Weeks and weeks in France after. Every programme showed that goal for weeks and weeks. And that was it. And my confidence was all there. My fitness was there. And then, you know, that week I said to the missus, this is where it starts. This is what Marcel say, the real me. And if it doesn't work out, it'll not be a lack of trying, a lack of whatever. It'll be, it wasn't meant to be. It was a great time. French football was strong and it was interesting mm. for characters. You won three straight leagues, mm. which was extraordinary. You're not a young Peter Schmeichel out of European football. Yeah, Bromby, yeah. With Bromby. Played against a young Zidane for yeah. Cannes. 
Yeah. He played with Cantona. Eric, yeah, character. Never. You know, people going about Eric and they'll go, he was a, a really nice guy, you know. He'd come in in the morning, always come in. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, we'd be on a Harley Davidson. Eric was Eric, big guy, you know. But nice guy, didn't suffer yeah. fools. And he'd come in, bonjour, ça va, every morning, very polite. And he was in the team, Beckenbauer liked him. It was me, him and uh, Papan. He got injured, he did his knee. And he was out six weeks or something like that, ligament trouble. And by that time, it became me, Papan and Biddy Pellier. And we were on fire, the three were. Eric couldn't get back in the team. And Eric was one of them who would think, I'm not sitting here. So he basically said, I want to go, which they did. Well, let him go to Nîmes for a million euro, a million quid, whatever, whatever it was. But I used to get all right with him. He was never a problem. Come in, he, not, not the most talkative, trained well, really nice guy. And, uh, you know, to me, he was, a, he was a good player, but I never thought he would be as big as he was when he came to my lead. And the French players, you know, the Marseille lads, and they used to say to me, we could never see Eric being a massive player in France. You know, a good player, but not the hate see which Man United. You know, Eric was a bit quiet, a bit reserved. And you could see when people say, he packed in at 30, whatever it was. And I said, yeah, I could see Eric. Not shocked by that. I could see Eric do that. No problem, I could see him do that. You made me laugh because when I moved to Barcelona, we decided that we needed a school that would be not Catalan for my young daughter who was moving from London. So we went to a school called Kensington in Pedralbas, just up where PK lived and overlooking the camp now. We came in and gradually the people will find out that maybe I, I talked about football, wrote about football. Said, oh, Canton, I was here for a year. Canton's boy. And it was the Harley Davidson. He drove up the hill on the Harley Davidson, roared up to the school. Right. And the teacher said to us, uh, when he joined, there's a form, you have to sign the form. So it was name of the child, whatever his son's name was, parent, Eric Cantona, profession. And he sort of stopped, scratched his chin and went, sex symbol. <laughs> <laughs> So he was a legend, and all the all the all the mummies stayed after taking their, their kids into school just to see Eric roar up on Harley Davidson. And I, it feels to me as if United are in a stage now where if they signed Slatan, for example, it would be akin to what Cantona yeah. did. It. It's it's that meeting of a presence, an what? attitude, a talent, and an ego that can explode at a big club oh, if, if the time is right. Easy, you could say that. Listen, like you saw you jump in the hit the Palace fan. When he, when he came to England because he got banned in France because he waited in the tunnel and chinned two players. Mm. You know, he hid in the, when they rolled the tunnel thing out, he stood in the gaps. And when they walked in, he jumped out and hit, he got them. So, but that was Eric. And he didn't look at the consequences. You know, he'd say Platini had a clue when he was a French national. He never got many caps. But that, type of, but that type of character. We're in, we're in a place now where there's actually a picture of you two playing, isn't there? Yeah, over there. Did I see a picture over of there, yeah. you playing for Chef Wed and yeah, him playing yeah, for United? Yeah, yeah. I, I, listen, I got him well, Eric. I, I really liked him. He was a really good guy. And, but I could see him packing in at 30. And I think what helped him in England a lot was English fans love a rebel. Mm. You know, they love a... Yeah. They love a Jack the Lad. And I think Eric was off the cuff. Anything could happen. I.e. the Gaza syndrome. Mm. All these type of things. Uh, anything could happen with Eric. So to them, it was somebody like, you know, reading another story about him. You know, people like Balotelli get more press for what he did off the field than he did on it. Mm -hmm. Where Eric did it for my night, he can't mm -hmm. say he didn't. So he, he got it for the right reasons, but people do like these type of characters who are sort of rule breakers. You know, we've always liked that type, whether it be snooker, football, yeah. any, any type of sport, any type of life. People like them rebellious type players. So when Eric came here, he fitted the bill. Mm. So obviously, we, his football did the talking for him as well, don't get wrong, but I could see why people took to him. I don't know what you think of this guy, and I don't think you played with him for very long, but 
Leo Messi's number one football player, the one who inspired him, as Tony Hutchinson did you, was Francescoli. Yeah, no, yeah. Messi talks about Francescoli endlessly. Does he? Yeah, no, it's, he adores him, idolises him. What kind of football talent was he? He's, he's underknown in Britain because yeah. he went back to South America quickly. Had a year with him, yeah. television coverage. Had a year with him at Marseille. Not me nicer guy. Yeah. Uh, oh, lovely guy. It was funny because like after a game, I'd have a beer, which is an English way, and I'd have, I'd have a bottle of beer, and he used to look at me and go, English, and I used to go, Yeah, but you have. I used to drink two bottles of Coca Cola, big bottles a day. And I went, that's worse than that bottle. If I have three beers and you have two, two of them, you're worse off than me. No. He went, everybody in South America drinks Coca-Cola like this. I went, well, I says, that's it. We couldn't prove it. I said, well, we did test. I said, people would say, drink the three beers rather than two big two-litre bottles of Coca-Cola. Uh, he spoke decent English. I fell for him because he came in from Paris, racing Paris he was at, I think. And uh, he came in when we wanted another player to score... 15, 20 goals. I was only getting six, seven. Papa was getting 26. Abidi was getting like eight, nine. And we thought if we got another player who was getting 18, 19, it would help with Marseille all of a sudden. Enzo turns up. I already knew Enzo, you know, because I, I, I look at football and study world football. I knew Enzo, he was South American Football of the Year, and we all knew who he was. And he came in, and unfortunately, Enzo, the ball wouldn't go in it. And um, certain games, semi final against Benfica, when we, we lost. Champions League against Sven Goran Eriksson's been yeah the handball one we lost at home at home we created I don't know how many chances we're talking probably I'm probably exaggerating but it felt like 15-20 on the night at 2-0 up yeah and Enzo had about 6-7 good chances and Bernard Tappy Bernard Tappy Bernard Tappy sort of he's not the guy who's going to put them all in there so he was a bit he had a year basically and he was gone again but lovely lad great great technician you know great football again you know the South Americans I love the South Americans because they're like, they remind me of when we grew up as kids. You know, we all lived on council estates. We didn't have any money, realistically. Yeah, we got by, but we didn't have nothing. I never had a car, coloured TVs. And football was like um, your passion and your, it was a way out. And I think the South Americans are like that now. Because mm. uh, I think modern day footballers are all worried about the image, the car, the house, the money. Then it's football. And I think that's why football's deteriorating badly. Where the South Americans have got that hunger, it's like the boxer, you know, lives in the slums. All of a sudden, he can punch his way out, and all of a sudden, he's getting millions. You know, you look at the, the Premier League or the football around the world at the minute. You know, you look at people like Sanchez at Arsenal. Hunger, you know, his passion for the game. When you watch him, you know, he's like, it's everything's about it. You watch Suarez, the passion these guys have got. Messi's Argentinian, and I don't think we've got that as much in Europe anymore. I definitely think our country hasn't. I can imagine going to English kids and saying. Right, we're coming back this afternoon, we're going to do some work training. And they'll all be like, why? You know, I think it's, I want to get me Range Rover outside. I want to get me, you play football. And it's the last thing on the agenda, probably. When we produce a lot of players, what we're talking about, your Glen Oddles, your uh, Gaza, all come from council states. Hunger, football was a passion. You could ask a lot of them lads, what did you earn a week? And I bet you half of them couldn't tell you. Bet you couldn't. I couldn't tell you now what I earned at Tottenham. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, your missus could. What I earned at Marseille, over, I couldn't tell you. I just wanted to play football and I knew I was getting rewarded because I had a house and I could buy things. But that was the priority, the football. That was it. One of the th- you know, you lived a happy footballing life largely. Mm. Football made you happy, you made other people happy, you made the seats slap back mm. at Sheffield Wednesday. But quite a lot of the time now, football makes you angry mm. because 
in the home countries particularly, we're not very careful of the ball. No. We're not very intelligent tactically. No. If we get good players, then largely they're not like Frank Lampard, who had basic talent mm. and worked his absolute yeah. socks yeah. off to be the best, to be disciplined. He had the type of hunger, despite coming from a rich background, that you've talked about in Suarez or Alexis. But when you are angry after another England defeat and you say we, we never learn, what, what in your eyes are the solutions? Because we can't introduce mass poverty and put people on, no, on council no. states to give them no. hunger. No. Therefore, what you can maybe do is do what Spain managed to do with the generation that became Alonso and mm. Xavi mm. and Iniesta, however. As well as it making you angry, do you, do you see solutions? No. I think money's took control and the only way England will ever get back to what I call a proper side and producing proper players again will be if the money dries up and it goes to a different country. Let them have all the rights and whatever and let us make work with the tools we've got rather than just saying I ain't got time for him to develop I ain't got time for him to develop I'll just go and buy somebody like that and it's nothing to spend I mean foreign clubs must look at England and think yeah let him go there because he might not play in the Premier League very well because it's a physical league and it's a fast league it not suit that type of player we'll get him back in a year and probably for a quarter of what we've sold him other countries must laugh and but to England, there's that much money. They must just think, we're not bothered. No disrespect, but Di Maria, they've lost £14 million in a year. If you were in any industry, you'd be sacked, you'd close down. But it's like, well, it didn't work out. £14 million. So it's like, well, it doesn't matter because we've got all this money shipping in every week. So we don't care, basically. And I, I just look and think, when I say to Newcastle, I'm going offhand, yeah, off cuff. I'm going, I'd say we had... 38, 40 pros, mm -hmm. right? Most clubs today will be lucky if they've got 20. Where your class is first team players. So all them ones where they'd say, give them two years. Certain clubs still do it, like your crews. Certain clubs will say, that kid's 18, there's a three, four year contract. Because at 22, I think he's going to be a player. We will go, right, most clubs, this will be in England, any division, right, what about him? Three, four years will be a player, I think. Good chance of being a top can't wait four years for him and sell him. Somebody will take him up, might go abroad, might go to non-league, might drift, might pack up. So the days have gone of saying, let's work with these kids and educate them and work with young players. And we will get the rewards as a crew with people have over the years who picked up the players from Man United, Man City, around the Lancashire area who said, I haven't got time to wait. Daniel Grady or whoever else went, I'll wait. And they get the rewards. And now clubs, they want success tomorrow. They want to play it to walk in and off the... Even if you're non-league now, they want you to walk off the non-league pitch into the first team. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to be... If you say, I've got to keep them non-league, in three years' time, we'll have a player here. Mm -hmm. Not buying them. Buying them in three years' time. So we don't work anymore. Coaching skills, I don't blame every coach. I've never been a fan of coaching schools. I've never been a fan of badges. Don't say it. You know the game or you don't. They all go in one door and they all come out the same with the same tick and the same methods of what they've done. Now... Yes, it is a results business, football. But English football in general is we don't have time to coach them. The desire, as I said, is not there. I don't think there's a passion. I think it's 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're finding hunger. I think it's 13, 14 to talk about what I could get, mm -hmm. what I could have. And you think you'll get that. Stick in do, it. Do the proper things well and the other stuff will and come. And coaching now is all about based on two-touch football. Now, listen, Spain are phenomenal. 
at what they've done. And mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of, people say it's boring, I can see how it's boring. I think it's fantastic. And I love the way Barcelona play. What Barcelona's done is they've brought this, the, the game to a level of back four, um, your midfield guys play two-touch football in a way. And then you say, it reminds a bit of Marseille, to be fair, where we had a four, we had a three sometimes, but we played a four. All had comfortable on the ball. The midfield lads could graft Deschamps, Deschamps yeah. could graft, could play two-touch football. And then it was basically, you get it to Messi, you get it to Waddle, you get it to Biddy Pelle, you get it to Neymar. You've got Patman who put the ball in it. It's not rocket science, the formula it works. And if you look at Barcelona now, Messi, uh, Neymar, Suarez, front three win your football matches. These ones, organised, move the ball, get the ball back, move the ball, get the ball, i.e. to him first, or him second, and then him, whatever. But get the ball to them three, and we will win football matches. It's not rocket science, but what teams have done is they've copied it, which is great, in a way, but you watch teams now pass the ball for passing's sake. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, I watch a lot of teams in the Premier League now, they get it, and they go, pff, 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 pass, 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 pass. And then you think... What, what actually are these trying to achieve here? Who are they going to get the ball to? Who's going to produce that magic, right? Now, if you look at the best sides in the world, who you'll probably say, at the minute, oh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, stick out always. So what you're looking at is to say, we need to find and coach. So if you're training every day with kids and whatever, and you're doing two-touch football, relentless, how do you get a player to dribble past somebody? If, you're two, if I was doing two-touch football every day of my life, I would then start thinking... I don't, I don't dribble anymore because I don't have to. I just get it and I move it to him and then he moves it to him. But you've got to have a player or two, or preferably three, who can do the unexpected. We've stopped coaching players. Glenn Huddle's off the cup could just do, make something happen like that. Gaza, pick the ball up, drive with people, bump, bump, see him, past him, past the next one. And I remember playing with, all, playing with players and every club had three, four players who could do something yeah. on the ball. Yeah. Now you look and it's basically... The right back and the left-sided midfield player are the same. They control it and they pass the ball. They control it and they pass the ball. They control it and they pass the ball. Then you got the centre forward, you think, he gets a hold of it and he lays it back. People rave about anybody now. I'd say it would be a big star, or could be a big star, Mares at Leicester. Now, if they can keep a hold of him, they've done well. Because mm -hmm. this guy, he's 23, 22, 23, before, whatever he's... He's got better, he's got more, he's settled more in English football now, he's more at home, he's got this stronger, he's whatever, he understands the game a lot more. Now, you put him in Barcelona's team, he wouldn't know how to play. Because he, what he'll do is they'll get the ball to him and he'll get one on one and he'll go, wait, watch this. Mm -hmm. By the end of the season, he'll be. Somebody will want him. Oh, and it'll be big bucks. Right. But right, so, so why are we not producing players who are worth absolutely millions and wins your football matches? Why, why is it it's all about. Two-touch football where you say, I don't want to take... Basically, what it's saying is, take the risk out of football, right? So you take the risk. Now, you do get a player who can do something and you think you'll take them off after 60 minutes or they'll bring them on for 25 minutes. But the fans go to football matches to say, I want to watch this. Last season, Barcelona played Paris Saint-Germain. They found them really difficult opponents. They lost in Parc de France. Mm. And they came to the knockout stages. Paris Saint-Germain were pressing very high. Mm. And Iniesta got the ball about... 20 feet outside his own box. And he swivelled. Got to it first, swivelled. Knocked the ball on. The guy did what you were talking about. The next one, who I think was Verratti. Nearly got there. And he has to nick it past him. Got past another one. Sent in a wonderful pass. So he's gone more than mm -hmm. three quarters of the length of the pitch now to Neymar. And Neymar scores. 
and I interviewed him afterwards and he's like, yeah, it's, he couldn't describe as well as you do about your art, but he said, it's a split second thing. It's innate. You learn how to do it, you do it. He said, all, all in your mind all the time is, is the knowledge of the risk. Mm. If I get caught in that first moment, caught without a structure, they'll probably score. Mm. If they score or not, I'll look bad. And he said, no, I accept that risk. That, and I think there's a bravery in that. Of course it is. That isn't about physical bravery. It's mental. It's that confidence about doing things. But it's without that, football's barely worth it. I watch, listen, I watch game after game. I mean, I watched Arsenal Saturday at Newcastle. And Arsenal are, on the day, probably our best football team on the day. I think City's up there now, to be honest. But anyway, but Arsenal's, well, them sides, yeah, they all look comfortable and they all move the ball. But they played in front of Newcastle and they didn't have one player who could open the door. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Cazola, makes the ball tick. Fantastic footballer. Yeah. Got a little bit of a trick, and he? He ate that foot. And I like him, he's a really good player. But, you know, he's moving the ball. He's giving balls to players where he's got one on one. And you think, Oxley Chamberlain, one on one, go on. Check back. Comes back to Ramsey. Goes out the other side, comes back, goes back. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's good to watch and it's patient and it's, you know, they're not, it's not route one and it's not percentage, but you've got to have a player who can open a door or two. People keep saying, where'd you get them? There's, there's got to be talent out there. You know, where, where did all we come from then? Where did, you know, them players I've mentioned? The Chris Wardles haven't stopped being born, but in that patience development equation that you were talking about, people hadn't been patient and you, you know, gave up yeah. and you went and played yeah. as a goalkeeper. Yeah. And Cox went, I'm, as much as bad as it was, Arthur Cox, I'm not letting this one go. Mm. He didn't tell you that. Yeah. Now, there's a guy like you somewhere. There's millions of them. Huh? There's loads. There's loads. Listen, let me know that many, but there are there. Yeah, but there's, there's players out there. And it's, but what happens is, clubs take kids in now at five and six. And if you watch them say, they'll say, pass the ball, all the shot, pass the ball, pass the ball. What I should say is, you're playing the playground. 28 aside, there was no bibs, no cones. If you didn't shout, you didn't get it. And a lot of kids would shout even though they weren't on your team and you'd give it to them, you'd think... You'd... <laughs> but that was growing up and that was all part of football. You'd go on the backfields and you'd play one kid standing goal, you'd play uh, knockouts. And you'd play... In, in games, it was two years, you'd play crossbars. Yeah. You'd play... I can drive around here now, or I can drive around Sheffield. I, you don't see a kid on a football pitch. Yeah. Unless it's structured where there's a bib, mm. there's a cones, it's structured, a bloke going... <whistles> do, do, do. We were off, totally off-the-cuff footballers. You go in my neighbourhood in Ambas and it's representing the whole of Spain. Every street corner, there's this multi-purpose basketball, five or seven It's packed all the time. Little <laughs> kids running around with a football, smaller, heavier. You can't kick it yeah. on. But they still go out. And whether they're any good or not, they're out there banging a ball against the wall, dribbling past somebody. We had it all the time. We'd and it's, it's not here now. Sunday morning, we'd uh, play Sunday morning. When I was young, young, we used to watch the, the local one, which was a big match, was London. We had uh, shoot, time tees. We'd watch that, have your dinner, watch that, and then everybody would be out on the backfield okay. and it'd be a, a normal football pitch, size football pitch, and you'd say, must have been 20 other side. And you'd get kicked and pushed and there'd be kids, blokes playing, there'd be kids at 10 playing. But everybody played, and it was just that is it. And you dribbled past, you had to dribble past like fourteen players to score, you know. But that was it, and um, that's how we grew up. It was all talk. We didn't have a bloke going, stop. Nobody. We had nobody. So there must have been a method. And you're not telling me when I go on about South America before in the streets of South America or the facilities or what they've got. There's blokes actually going, stop. They play how we played growing up. Yeah, the must. We, we've ended a little bit nihilistic because we're kind of saying football in this country is on a slippery slope and it doesn't seem to be intent of arresting that slope. 
So let me start by saying that um, talking to you has been pretty much as good as watching you mm. in your day. That we're sitting in front of banks and banks of fantastic football shirts. And I'll ask the most obvious and stupid question of the morning so far so you can get back to your life. It's been a happy football life for you. Isn't oh. it? Football's been good to you. Football's, a, football's great, isn't it? Listen, I'd love to have got in it earlier, 16, like everybody else. I didn't. But I, looking back, I would never swap how I got became a professional footballer. Give us great grounding, working in a factory for two and a half years. I was lucky. I was at the right age. I was a hunger. There was always a football game going on. I always got to play football. I played football seven days a week. Great. Never got coached till I was a pro. Newcastle, obviously, great. No, listen, I would never change what I've had. And people say you've had bad moments. Yeah, yeah, penalty miss. Or uh, we lost the Champions League with Marseille, which we should have won it with the team we had. And I think it would have been good for football if we'd won it. There's downsides, but listen, I don't know if football has never had a downside. But I always say the same thing, that I've really enjoyed football and I was great that I'm a footballer. And I just wish, as a country, we could get that hunger back as a country. You know, people say, when you think England winning in a tournament? I don't, I, I don't think I'll say that. It's a really depressing thought. Well, it is. The size of the country and the amount of money we've got, how we can't get it right. When you see, you know, no disrespect, but smaller countries with less finance, Oh. putting sides together because it goes back to what I keep saying they work the right way they preach the right way they get players in the right way you know, when I was at Marseille when I, quick thing when I look back at Marseille when we trained me and Abidi Pellier whatever sessions we did game wise possession wise me and him were always all in and they said we don't ever want to stop you doing what you do so you don't need to yeah you may do things and want to, to touch which you do but we don't want we want you to have that freedom to do what Saturday night you're going to do hopefully for one a pitch mm-hmm. where you know little things like that oh, I always look at and think you know in England I'll go and watch the centre half will have two touch in training sessions the centre forward will have two touch the winger will have two touch so everybody's playing two touch and you're not telling me you identify players but what you do in training in the week you try and put into practice on the Saturday but if you're playing two touch football Monday to Friday you will not be dribbling and having ten touches on the ball on a Saturday me personally but I'd Kick all the academies out and you can't start your 14. And kids should just play with the mates, school football, get it back. Get back to what, what we used to produce. And when people say it doesn't work, does it not work? Look at the quality players we've produced up to the you know, 80s, 90s. I'm on about technical players. And that's the key I'm on about. We can easily produce yeah. athletes. Yeah. Technical well, we players. Do. That's Tec- all we've got, just about. Right, so we need to produce technical players. And until we go back to a system of saying, how did we produce technical players? Leave them alone. Give them little pointers. You don't train the same. If you've got a player in open doors, you don't say, you're too touch. You don't know about Barcelona before, Xavi, Iniesta, Messi. Messi would have been a winger and probably been used in certain games. Yeah. Xavi and Iniesta would have been too little, sorry. And that sums up English football, I mean. Well, when um, I rise to my natural role, which would be some sort of leader of an independent, monarchy-free country, you'll be appointed my minister, <laughs> you'll be appointed my minister uh, of sport. Listen, it's going to take a long time. But, um, but, but without people like you saying these things, because there's so many deaf out there who are either stupid, blind or deaf. Because these things that you've explained, you've explained them passionately and clearly. So what the how are people doing out there that is getting things it's more difficult to get it as wrong as people are getting it now I think and just to listen to what you've just been saying I think the problem the big problem is right is one word money mm. 
too much. In the world of football, we've got too much. And it sounds stupid, doesn't it? But we have. So we need another country, i.e. where Italy dominated for years. They faced the consequences. But what works in Italy's favour is they've got a lot of Italians playing. When their squad's named, there's a lot of players to pick from. Yeah. Our league's full of foreign footballers, right? It's not their fault. We bring them in. We pay the money. We, that's where they want to be. But realistically, if you sat down all the foreign players in this country and said, what league would you love to play in? It's the same wage. I would go 95, 99% would say not England. But there's vast wealth here, so I'm going to come, so my we, career short, I'm going to take the money. We need to change, which you can't do, I know. We'd, we'd love to change, we can go back to three, foreign, four foreign players in the team. And it makes you work with the players you've got and you coach and you get young players developing and you get them right. You find players. It's too easy now to disregard players and go, oh, as a kid in 40 caps, Bosman, get him in. It's too easy because they've got the money. Because what will happen is there'll be an, uh, a complete disaster of the money will dry up one day and people say, no, it will. And when it does, we'll be sitting there and as we always do as a country, after every disaster, we make a rule. Whether it be the stadiums all seated as a disaster first. Anything that happens in this country, we make a decision after it. Instead of acting now, we'll not. We'll wait, the money will run out and we'll go, what we're going to do? Who saw this coming? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, since I would say since I'm not having to go with Sky, the Premier League formed, and that's the way the game's gone. But since '92, our game has deteriorated. National team, badly. Going to give you your life back. Now, you've been exceptional to speak to. You've been exceptionally generous. I'm going to ask you, which I've only done once before, whether sometime in the long distant future we can come back and do the rest of this because we missed a lot of Spurs mm. we missed a lot of Sheffield Wednesday yeah. we missed Tommy Burns not being able to persuade you to move to Glasgow that's right we, what Neil calls the glory years at Brockville with Falkirk we've missed a lot of a life well spent you're a football genius a still contend England Zidane it's been a privilege and a pleasure sure. even beyond what we expected pleasure Chris Wardle thank Cheers, you very man. much indeed thanks a lot thank you. absolute joy What I, of course, did immediately after we finished this wonderful chat with Chris was to go and look up BSA motorbikes with sidecars. Now, believe me, they weren't made for two adults and three children. What I suspect Chris didn't tell us is that to get from the northeast of England to Watford in time for the 1966 World Cup final, they must have set off something like March 1965. All that fun, all that talent in one crazy contraption heading down to Watford. Thank the Lord there was never an accident. Chris has just run us through anecdotes and dealings with most of the biggest names of the last 30 years in football. Jack Charlton, Franz Beckenbauer, Papin, Keegan, Cantona, Schmeichel, Sedan. It's a joy to listen to a man like that. And without labouring the point, I want to tell you, I want to emphasise, it's very rare to come across a truly great footballer who had gifts that weren't metronomic, that weren't about geometry, gifts that defy normal people's description. It's unusual for that footballer to be able to put it into words the way that Chris did so eloquently there, where he made it like a gunslinger. He made it like a Western standing there in burning sun. Who's going to draw first? Whose eyesight's going to be best? Whose manner is going to give an indication that he's going for his gun? 
That's what it felt like to me. And I meant the comparison I gave to Chris, that it felt like listening to the very best bowlers saying, how will I winkle out? How will I trick? How will I lead into making a mistake? The very best batsman, the most stubborn batsman. The fact that the interview came just after England beating Australia to in the ashes maybe made that comparison quicker to my head. But listening to him was spellbinding and funny. And I very much hope you felt the same. We've come to a stage where we've done so many good podcast interviews that we put time and money into. And at some stage in the future, we're going to need to look for your financial support to keep them coming. In the short term, I want to thank Backpage, Neil and Martin for coming up with the idea and for being so firmly behind making them excellent all the time. Alex for her continuously superb editing and Beer Jacket for that haunting, clever little sting that comes from a much better, bigger tune and several albums that you can all find if you go looking for Beer Jacket's music. Stay tuned to the big interview. There will be more coming soon for the moment. Thanks for being there. Thanks to all of you for feeding back to us how much you love listening to them in the gym, in the car, commuting on the tube train. If you want exclusive information about how to keep getting extra snippets of interview, we ask questions from Chris sent in by a few lucky winners, get your name on the grahamhunter.tv mailing list. Sign up for GH Podcast on Twitter. Make sure that we know about you and we'll make sure that you know what we're doing before everybody else. Thanks for being there.